Uh, Would you stand with me as I read our scripture for this morning? We're going to start in uh, chapter 15, verse 4, and read down to verse 10. Listen as I read. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Please be seated as I pray. Our good God and our good Father, we come before you now with your word open asking that your spirit illuminate it for our eyes and for our minds. We pray that you would give us ears to hear your words this morning. And we pray that you would seek out the dark parts of our heart and reveal them to your light. Would you encourage us as we need encouraging this morning? Would you exhort us as we need exhortation? We ask these things so that we might be a people who glorify you together and that your name might be honored among us. We pray this in the standing of Christ. Amen. Isn't it the case that when someone loses something that they are invariably happy when it's been found? It could be something simple, maybe like a a receipt or, or a mitten or a sock. Those things always seem to go missing. It could be something a little more important, maybe, uh, maybe your wallet. You can't find your wallet or your keys, your purse, where is that? Or we live in a, in a technological age now, so that one thing that no one can do without, their phone. You lose that, the world just stops spinning. We know that the longer they've spent looking for whatever they've lost, the more important it is to them. People give up looking, things, looking for things they don't, they don't care about. Uh, maybe you've had the experience of, of losing something of great importance before. Uh, as I said, we, we live a t- in a technological age, and uh, we had been switching computers. It was, it was my task to take everything that was on the old computer and put it on the new one. Well, I, I had done that, and it came time where we were looking for some, some pictures and videos that were just of great importance to us, and we wanted to look them up. And I realized they were nowhere to be found on this new computer. Uh, I don't know if you can understand, you probably can, that, that sick feeling in your stomach when you realize, oh no, I think it's all gone. Uh, I searched, I did every nerdy Google search you can do to try to find these things on the new computer. Uh, everything, I called friends, no, no one seemed to be able to give me help in being able to find these things. I was assured they were gone. I remember telling Barb, and we actually began to grieve the loss of these things together. Everything from uh, the birth of children to first steps to trips we'd taken, uh, all of those memories in digital form, gone. I even called our, our 
my mom and Barb's parents and shared it with our family. Hey, I, I'm going to keep searching for this thing, but would you just pray that I'd have perseverance in this? I, I'm just sick about this loss. Well, after some time, I had done enough searches, and I, I just started going through piece by piece, folder by folder by folder. And then I came across this one folder that, for some reason, had this long string of numbers and letters, and I didn't know what it was, but I looked inside. And inside that folder was another folder of long string of numbers and letters, and I didn't know what that was. And I went inside there, and inside there was everything. Everything. The moment we said, I do... The first words, the trips we'd taken, it was all there. I I ran through the house and yelled, I found it! I found it! I was ready to cry. I was so happy. The kids had seen the stress looked on my face over the days that I had been searching for this. And everyone came together and hugged and we celebrated. I remember mentioning to my parents-in-law and my mom, hey, we found it and they celebrated too. You see, those who were with me, those who had knew the value of what had been lost, they were relieved and they too rejoiced at my find. Our passage today speaks of three things that had been lost and were found. And these things that were lost didn't just suddenly appear. No, they were either sought out or the return was hoped for. And when they were found, the celebrations weren't a solo expression. They were shared. On the day that the shepherd was returned with his sheep, the woman had been reunited with her coin and the father with his son. Preparations were made and celebrations were had. And while our minds might initially go to the value of the thing that was lost, the sheep, uh, the coin, or the son, these three things, as we're going to see today, actually act as a vehicle that exposed the nature of our heart The nature of the heart of those who would either celebrate with Almighty God, would hold their tongues, or worse, scowl. The main question that we're going to be answering this morning is this. What should the outpouring of our heart look like when that which is lost becomes found? These three parables, which which are actually one, we're going to be spending a lot of time going back to our text. So please keep your Bible open. Look back to verse 3. It says this of Jesus, so he told them this parable. And then he goes on to tell them three stories. We're going to look at those three stories in their one context. But to understand these, it is important to grasp the context in which these three parables are being shared. Uh, Look back to verse 1 of chapter 15 with me. It says this, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. This man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. The presence of Jesus had drawn a mixed crowd. Part of the crowd were the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law. These men would have been the ones held in high esteem, both by others, but maybe more tellingly, by themselves. These Jews knew the law. They knew what God wanted. They were the righteous ones, after all. But as the verse tells us, there was another group of people drawn to Jesus as well. They were the tax collectors and the sinners. They too were Jews, but these weren't the righteous ones, no. These weren't the ones who 
who kept the law, let alone the law on the law, and maybe wouldn't have even been able to recite part of the law if it had been asked of them. The tax collectors, well, those are the ones that had sold out to Rome and were known to steal from their own people. The sinners, what a lovely name for a group of people, isn't it? We're likely made up of those less desirable parts of a population. Thieves, prostitutes, the unclean, the poor. This group had no social standing or religious right, and yet when Jesus sat, they clamored to be next to him. And Jesus didn't drive them away. After all, as we'll see, these were some of the faces of the loss that our text alludes to in metaphor. And being lost is an issue that is on full display in this section of Luke. The only hope one has when one is lost is that one might be found. The emphasis is underscored by the fact that this word is used six times, lost and found. In this context, Jesus is making the point of marrying the two terms such that when one thinks of that which is lost, one thinks of that which is found. Remember, our only hope when one is lost is that one can be found. If you're lost in the woods, your hope isn't that you might be able to make shelter for the night. Your hope is that someone's going to find you. Now, the use of these words isn't accidental. And I don't want the weight of these words, lost and found, to be lost on us today. The foundation of Christian theology is wrapped up in our being lost. Lost in our sin and found by God in Christ. And if you're here today, even if you're a newer Christian or you struggle with some of the more complex doctrines of the Christian faith, you will be able to with clarity declare, just as the familiar hymn does, that you once were lost and you now are found. In fact, as you declare that truth, you will do so with joy because the old shame attached to your sin is no longer your own, but is instead assumed by Christ. In this reality, you know that you have life free from guilt and condemnation, and so you can breathe deep And long, and now you rejoice in that reality. This reality really is the most basic explanation of the gospel. So please, if you are here with us this morning and you did not know that this is the foundational truth that the Christian faith asserts, please know it today. Unless you repent of your sin and claim Christ as your Lord, you will remain lost in that sin. But in Christ, in his sinless life, in his sacrificial death, and in his God-powered bodily resurrection, the resurrection that we celebrated just last week, and in his alone, you can be found. And make no mistake, Seeking and saving those who are lost is why Jesus came from heaven to earth. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says of himself, The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. So please, regardless of your state, hear this teaching of Christ as one that would shape the way you see your own soul this morning. Lost. Found. Now, because what we have before us is a, is a text and not a recording, we're left to guess at the tone in which things are said. Of course, especially if you are married, issues often arise not with 
what you say, but often with how you have said it. And as Jesus is known for doing, my sense is that both what he says and how he says it holds great weight to the hearers of his original message. Remember, we have both the self-proclaimed righteous heirs of promise and sinners present when Jesus speaks his lost and found triad of parables. Uh, The first two follow the same formula. Something of value is lost, and the owner of it goes to great ends to find it. In the case of the shepherd, one of his sheep wanders away. And because the shepherd knows his sheep, he knows that Fluffy is gone. And because the shepherd not only knows his sheep, but also loves his sheep, he leaves the other 99 behind and goes to find it. Now, the pragmatic side of our 21st century minds may question the wisdom in leaving the other 99 in the open country to find one. That seems like bad math. Aren't the other 99 important? What happens to them when the shepherd is gone to find the one? Asking these questions misses the point that the other 99 are not lost. They are already in the care of the shepherd. That's it, nothing more and nothing less. The 99 other sheep are not lost, and one, Fluffy, is. And because the shepherd is a good shepherd who has care over all of his sheep and desires that he not lose any of them, he leaves the other 99 and he goes to seek the one. I don't know if you ever did this when you were younger, like a, a smaller child. Uh, maybe you were in a big department store with your parents, and uh, you decided to play hide-and-go-seek, except they weren't playing. <laughs> I remember doing this to my mom. I, th- I think we were either in Sears or the Bay, and you remember those, the big racks of clothes, and I thought it would be fun to go and hide in amongst them and watch her frantically search for me. Uh, Barb and I had a, had a similar experience to this. We were, we were in San Antonio, Texas. We had taken a trip down there. We were at the Museum of Play. Fun place, cool place for kids. We only had two children at the time. Catherine was just uh, almost three, so she's still two, and Olivia was still in a stroller. Barb was pushing the stroller, and I was to watch Catherine. We had man-on-man coverage. This thing was locked down in a busy place. Now, Depending on your parenting style depends on how much leeway you give your kids. And we give ours a a fair bit. And so Catherine was winding her way. It was a three-level facility with just stations of playthings and toys. And there's kids everywhere. This place was packed. So Barb's pushing Olivia, and and I'm watching Catherine. (laughs) Squirrel! (laughs) Where's Catherine? Well, I mean, she must, I saw her just a second ago. She must just be around the corner. Look around the corner. No, Catherine. Well, she just must be around the next corner in the next area. Go there. No, Catherine. I do this throughout sort of the main area, the main floor. At one point, I, have to, I eventually have to go back to Barb and say, I, I, I lost her daughter. <laughs> um, so she and I, you know, Tim, we start, we split up, we work together, we try to find her. We can't find her. Five minutes later, no Catherine. Uh, I talked about the pit in my stomach when I thought I had lost all of our pictures. Nothing compared to this. 
Five minutes feels like five years at that point. Well, my Canadian calm had quickly worn off, and I am sprinting around this place just yelling Catherine's name. I even ran out on the main street thinking maybe, possibly, she got outside somehow. Nothing. By this point, ten minutes have passed, and the staff of the Children's Museum of Play have joined in the search. This is, this is how old she is. This is what she looks like. This is what she was wearing. Here's where we last saw her. Here's her name. Everyone's looking. Between 10 and 15 minutes later, we're standing near the front trying to figure out, I, I guess I could run around this place again. What do we do? When one of the workers comes with little Catherine in hand towards the front. Oh, what joy. <laughs> she had inadvertently got into a staff elevator at the back of the facility and was riding up and down just pushing buttons thinking this is this is a great party and in those moments you are elated and you are enraged <laughs> you want to hug your child and you want to kind of strangle them a bit too like what are you doing don't ever do that again. I love you, but don't ever do that again. These are the things that come out, and it's a normal parental response. But notice in verse 5, go back there with me. Verse 5, when the shepherd finds his lost sheep, look there. It says, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. The shepherd expresses no anger and offers no sharp rebuke. He doesn't beat the sheep for wandering off. He doesn't chain the sheep to a post so it won't wander away again. He just picks it up. He places it on his shoulders so it can be reunited with the flock under the shepherd's care and celebrates that his lost sheep is now found. And this is the image that God provides his people with through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, he writes, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, protected close under his care. The actions of the woman in the, in the second parable here are the same. She's lost a coin, something of value. And, and the statement concerning her actions is posed as the obvious question with the obvious tone. Look to verse 8 with me. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? The answer to this rhetorical question is built within the question itself. If you lose something of value, finding it is of paramount importance. And when that has happened, we go back to the last place we remember having missed the thing. Where was the last place I remember having it? We search, we retrace our steps. And when that yields nothing, we start cleaning our bedroom. We start cleaning that drawer in the kitchen. We go room by room, cleaning everything along the way until the item is found. We do this because what we lost is of great value. And when that which was lost is found, high fives, hugs, phone calls, Facebook posts, Instagram selfies with smiley emojis, all types of celebrations are had at that point. I found that which was lost. My joy is great. Friends, come and celebrate with me. When we found something that has been lost, those who are with us, 
those who share our mind and heart of the value of that which has been lost, they celebrate our find. And our parables today do not stray from this experience. To drive this home, look to verse 6 with me. It says this of the shepherd, when he, and when he, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. And again, look down to verse 9. And when she, the woman, has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Notice that the extent of the celebration seems to supersede the thing that was lost. I mean, it was just one sheep. The shepherd had 99 others. I mean, it was, it was just one coin. The woman had nine others. Why the need for such celebration? Well, remember that a parable is a story that is telling us something that is true but isn't true itself. Follow me here. It's a made-up story intended to communicate a, a bigger truth. And Jesus uses a parable here to do just that. You see, in both instances, uh, what the lost sheep and the lost coin represent is clear. They represent the sinner who was lost in their sin, but then found again through repentance. We know that because Jesus makes the connection for us in verse 7 and 10. Look to verse 7 again with me. Just so, meaning just like the sheep uh, that was found, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And again in verse 10, look there. Just so, meaning just like the coin that was found, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Yes, there is joy over a lost sheep and coin that have been found. Oh, but when a sinner repents, heaven explodes with joy. Christian, when you confessed your sins and you placed your faith in Christ, angels cheered. We're told that the angels of God get in on the joy expressed when a sinner looks to Almighty God and confesses their need for forgiveness. And just as the friends of the shepherd and the woman celebrated with their friends, so too do the angels of God when a sinner turns from their sins and turns towards God. Now, you might be rightly asking, but I thought that they said that there were 99 righteous people who didn't need to repent. Uh, the same inference can be gleaned from the, other, from the one sinner who repents in verse 10 as well as thinking about the other nine coins. So, so how does that work? Doesn't everyone need to repent? Who isn't in need of repentance? To answer that question, we're going to look to the third section of this parable. And with that, we'll pull everything together. The third parable, maybe the most familiar to, mo to all of us, we might think is the same. But as we're going to see, the parable of the prodigal son as it's most commonly known, actually contrasts the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and looks to explain something very important about ourselves. So while it does in greater detail expose the heart of the lost person contrite before God, it also acts as a warning to those who may think they are with God, but in reality have strayed and are really only out for their own glory. An obvious question is, why would someone not be happy when a sinner repents 
and turns to Jesus. It sounds so strange, and yet you and I are capable of muting the joy we ought to express. Oh, it may not be as blatant a response as we're about to see, but poisonous subtleties are just as deadly. You see, when we place our own glory, and when our own glory holds a place in our heart, the heart change of others will go uncelebrated. Let me flip that for emphasis. When the heart change of others goes uncelebrated, it is not the glory of God that has prominence in our own hearts. The scene in this third section depicts a father with two sons, an older son and a younger son. The younger son, the one to whom no honor would have traditionally been given, He wouldn't have been the the next head of the family. He decides that whatever cut he's going to get from his father's wealth, he wants it now. He wants to get it, and he wants to get out. The younger son wants to throw off the authority of his father and do his own thing, to go his own way. Jesus doesn't paint much of a picture for us concerning the back and forth that would have taken place between the father and the younger son. But you can imagine a how brazen an act of the younger son this would have been, and be how hurtful this would have been to the father. I don't want to wait until you're dead to get what's coming to me, dad. Be dead to me now and give me what's mine. And as parents must inevitably do, this father lets his son go in this culture with the inheritance he would have one day otherwise received. And of course, the younger son, being of such great character, only made good choices with his newfound fortune. Sadly, no. Look back to verse 13 with me. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So not only does the younger son insult his father by demanding his cut from his father's estate, he takes the privilege he's been given and he squanders it on trite consumables and fair-weather friends. For someone who is as self-consumed as this younger son must have been, it is not hard to imagine what those things might have been and with what ease he would have found them. In verse 14, we're told that there's a famine in that distant land that he had traveled to out of money and with nowhere to go. The younger son stoops to the lowest of lows and he works as the keeper of pigs. What an abhorrent image to a first century Jew. The uncleanness of the younger son's heart was now being manifested in his role of caring for the most unclean of animals. But the thought comes to him. My father is good. Maybe maybe he'll take me back. If even as a servant, maybe he'll have me back. Look to verse 17 with me. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
And so the speech has been prepared. If I'm lucky, he'll take me in. If he does, I live. If he doesn't, I die. The story goes on to speak of the son's return. Look back to verse 20 with me. It says in verse 20, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Just like the shepherd with his sheep, like the woman with her coin, when that which was lost was found, not only does the one who had lost celebrate, but joy exudes from those who are supporting the one who had known the loss to begin with. You see, we celebrate when loss is recovered. It is a fitting thing to do. So how do the hearers of Jesus' parable hear this? Well, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law hear that, a, that the younger son had thrown off tradition and had brought shame on his house. They learned that he had lived a, a sinful, self-indulgent life. They know that he's worked with pigs and is unclean. Shameful echoes of verse 2. Sinner. Indignant echoes of verse 2. Sinner. But how does the other group that's sitting there hear this parable? The younger son had thrown off the tradition of his family and brought shame on his house. They learn that he's lived a sinful, self-indulgent life. They know that he's worked with pigs and is, and is unclean. Oh, the shame. Echoes of verse 2. Sinner. You see, they, they feel the condemnation. They, they know that in their own hearts. But over top of that, over top of the echoes of sinner, they hear hope. You see, the younger son returned home with nothing of value. He didn't come back with the inheritance ready to pay back. In fact, when the father went out to embrace him, he had not yet even repented. And so they hear that the father is compassionate and that he embraces and kisses his son before the confession had even occurred. Oh, this is a good father. The younger son with nothing to his name represents the sinners and the tax collectors that were surrounding Jesus. As the Pharisees and the tax collectors muttered to themselves that the sinners had no worth and they degraded Jesus for spending time with them, 
They said, look, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Uh, Certainly no one truly of God would do such a thing. And on that, I want us to pause and say, I do believe that in our own righteousness, we would say they are right. You or I in our own righteousness outside of Christ would not consider such sinners worthy of our time. But where you or I might look away in our own righteousness... God incarnate share space. Where you or I might not want to be bothered, God the Son bore the cross so that sinners and tax collectors like you and like me might be received into the goodness of fellowship with our Heavenly Father. And those who are with the Father rejoice. Look to verse 24 with me. Down in verse 24 it says, The father says, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And who celebrated? And they celebrated. They, the servants of the father, rejoiced because they knew that this reunion brought honor to the father and they knew what being in the father's house meant for them. And so the servants celebrated alongside the father because in the father's house there is no famine. But instead, there is a fattened calf. In the Father's house, one is not exposed to the elements, but instead, there is a roof overhead. Because in the Father's house, one is not alone, but there is relationship with the Father and all who are with Him. The servants celebrated the return of the wayward son because they knew what it was to be under the care of the Father. It was fitting. Of course, the parable of the prodigal son doesn't end there. Remember, there were two groups of people listening. The sinners and the tax collectors. Well, I think they got it. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were about to. Look to verse 25 with me. It says this, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, has come and, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. In this, we see the heart of the older son revealed. He is so embittered by his father's welcoming back of his father's stupid son who wasted the family's wealth and brought shame on their name that he refuses to go into the house where his brother and his father are. Instead, he thinks only of himself and stays outside to sulk. Why hasn't such an honor been paid to me? Haven't I always done the to-do list the way it's been asked? And just as the shepherd went to find the sheep, the woman, the coin, the father in this story goes out now for a second time, this time to meet the older son, the one that had always shown loyalty and done what was right. He speaks as tenderly to his older son as he did receive again his younger. 
Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But he also refuses to allow the son's complaint to stand and separate himself from his younger brother. In other words, he's not just my son, he is your brother. You should be happy for him and with him. My joy should be your joy. It is fitting. And in this exchange, a great reversal of fortune is exposed as we see the heart of the older son revealed. We can see in the words of Jesus that the older son's actions seem to have always been rooted in his own self-interest and not out of pure love for the father. The older son says, I have done all that has been asked of me. And what did I get? Rings? No. Your best robe? No. No, I didn't even get a goat to celebrate with my friends. Yet for your good-for-nothing son, you kill the fattened calf. No, I don't want to go into your house, father. I am happier out here. The parable ends without giving us the answer to what the older brother will ultimately choose. Will he repent of his own self-interest and go inside to celebrate with his father and resurrected brother? The one who is dead and is now alive again? Or will he dig in his heels and stay outside of his father's house? Well, we don't know, but it's pretty clear what the options are for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law listening in. Friends, the response of our hearts towards those who are saved is a great indicator of the actual state of our hearts. In fact, I believe that this three-in-one parable of Christ can be used as somewhat of a, a litmus test as it pertains to our own hearts. Those whose interests are aligned with God's will join with the angels in celebrating when one sinner repents because in that repentant sinner they will see their former self having been lost and then found. Those whose hearts have not been aligned with that of the good father, sadly will ultimately find themselves outside the father's house where there is no food and there is no shelter and there is no relationship with the one who seeks and saves the lost. And with that, I'd like to suggest three quick things from Jesus' teaching that I think should shape our minds and thereby shape our actions. First, we should never forget to see ourselves as ones coming from the group of sinners. Yes, Ephesians 4.1 tells us that we have been chosen in Christ before the world began, and yet, for those in Christ, there was still a time when they were not. If you call yourself a Christian, there was a time when that was not the case. We who are Christians have been sought out and transferred from the kingdom of darkness, where we served ourselves and were slaves to sin, into the kingdom of light, where we are now joyfully slaves to Christ. Those who we can rightly classify as sinners are separated by nothing more and certainly nothing less than the grace of God through Christ Jesus. And so in them we see ourselves with humility and we praise God all the more. Please hear me in this. If you are joyful about the work of God in saving others, know that this is a mark of God's Spirit in your own life. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, and so when you feel joy about the work of God in the hearts of those and the lives of those around you, know that this is a mark of God's work in your own heart. Uh, I would say 
though, that we can also have lives that just exhibit immaturity at times. I remember a, a younger season of my life when uh, the church that I had been attending previously uh, as a teenager, they'd have baptism services. And I thought, well, there's a Sunday off. Don't need to go to that one. It's just baptism service. You're just hearing people talk about their testimony. You know, what's so exciting about that? I mean, they're becoming a Christian. That's great. But do we need to listen to it all over again? And so this also fights against ambivalence. Think of it this way. If someone has saved your life, if someone has saved your life, you were going to die, and they saved you, and then you found out that their child had incurable cancer, you'd, you'd feel the loss because you love the person who saved your life. Even if you didn't know their child You love the person who saved you. And so you feel the loss that they're experiencing. Oh, but what if you found out that that incurable cancer was gone? Oh, what joy would you share with that parent? What joy would flow from your heart? If the news came that the cancer was gone, you would be anything but blasé. Thinking of ourselves as the sinners, separated by nothing more and certainly nothing less than the grace of God and Christ Jesus will cause us to rejoice. Second thing is this. Knowing the fate that we have been saved from, the fate of the lost should be of paramount importance to us. You see, unless we had heard the gospel and repented, we would still be among them, those outside the Father's house. And outside the Father's house, there is famine, there is lawlessness, and there is isolation. So supporting the promotion of the gospel among the lost should be something that naturally flows from our hearts. Whether that's participating in the life of the church here, even as we think about the future for ourselves as a congregation. Sharing the gospel with those that are in our family, extended family, our friends, our co-workers. Or those that we support who bring the gospel to places where it's not. Those inside the Father's house. Those who are with the Father, who share in His joy, are to be all for this. And the third thing is this. We should let our lives be marked by joy. Our com- one, one commentator that I was reading said this. Even if we who have known the grace of a heavenly father can be stingy about the grace being applied to others, we can be stingy, he says. The image of the angry brother challenges us to have God's heart of compassion towards other sinners. Our compassion towards other sinners is a good indicator of how well we understand our own need for grace. Even in our own interpersonal relationships, we can be stingy in allowing the grace of God to cover over sin because we want them to feel the full consequence of their transgression. So let's rejoice in reconciliation and be quick to express joy concerning God's reconciling work in the hearts of others towards Himself. Ironically, we actually rob ourselves of joy when we withhold worship from the only one who is actually worthy of it, when we withhold joy concerning the repentance and forgiveness of others. 
And so with the grace of God in mind, may we be mindful of the forgiveness that we have received in Christ. And as did the friends of the shepherd who had lost his sheep and the friends of the woman who had lost her coin and the father who had lost his son, may we rejoice with the people of God and the angels of heaven when one sinner repents. May that be so. Let us pray. Our good God and our good Father, you have brought us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son, and you have done so by your grace. We thank you for your love, and we pray that you would do a work in our hearts. We pray that where we lack joy, you might give it by your Spirit. We pray where we might be stingy, with our exaltation of your name and of your work, that you might convict us of such things. Father, grow us as a people who love the lost and love you, the God who saves them. We pray this both for our good and for your glory. Amen.